Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Alex and Christian Giebert. Today's moment is from the Et Resurrexit movement of the Mass in B minor. Some artists are subjective, some objective. The art of the former has its source in their personality. Their work is almost independent of the epoch in which they live, a law unto themselves. They place themselves in opposition to their epoch and originate new forms for the expression of their ideas. Of this type was Richard Wagner. Bach belongs to the order of objective artists. These are wholly of their own time and work only with the forms and the ideas that their time proffers them. In them, the artistic personality exists independently of the human, the latter remaining in the background as if it were something almost accidental. Bach, indeed, is clearly not a single, but a universal personality. Whatever path we traverse through the poetry and the music of the Middle Ages, we are always led to him. That quote comes from Schweitzer's J.S. Bach volume, and I think nowhere else is it more perfectly encapsulated than the Mass in B minor, which is itself a collection of various Baroque forms and Bach's own earlier works. It's almost something that could only exist by a composer that Schweitzer calls objective, not trying to make their mark on history, but just by necessity pulling from every historical form that came before the composer into one gigantic whole thing and this is this is the thing the mass in b minor a giant religious text hundreds of years of church music history bound up in it and then 150 200 years of instrumental technique and developments and influences from around europe shining forth through it But also the storytelling device that Bach had in the Baroque era being shown in it, which is not something, like we talked about last week, Alex, that was always true of the older medieval and Renaissance music. Right. Storytelling device of text setting was not there, and Bach is a text painter. And the creed, the Nicene Creed, 
the I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, so on and so forth, is a huge chunk of not incredibly lyrical text that has to be divided into a bunch of separate chunks in order to make each of those divisions musically and tonally different with their own character or tone. Right. When we talked of affect in the last... We've, we talked about it in a couple of previous episodes recently. That's why you need such a huge, over two hour long work as the Mass in B minor, because he needs to split up all these things into these movements so that each one can have its own affect or vibe or tone or feeling. And you gotta have that. I mean, we just looked at last week, the Crucifixus, right? We looked at that because it was Holy Week. The affect of that was Holy Week. Right? It was it was about Jesus' death. The stunning, absolutely mind-boggling contrast between that and the It's Resurrexit. I can't imagine what it must have been like to hear this back in Box Day. Rarely do do two pieces in order tonally contrast against each other as much as these two. Yeah. Bach's Mass in B minor is incredibly spread out. Renaissance masses and older masses, they they blow through this section quickly. You know, you you don't even know necessarily that there is a tonal shift between these parts, but it all leads to Bach and his idea of segmenting this into this many parts and making each one have its own affect and translating it into his Baroque style. Listener, just let this play out for a minute and dwell upon the words that we're hearing here at the end of the Crucifixus. He suffered and was buried and thus ends that movement, but after a short moment of silence, and on the third day he rose again according to the scriptures.
is quite objective, even if even if you are a sort of postmodern thinker, it's kind of hard to deny that there's some kind of objectivity to the way this all comes together and becomes one thing in its highest form. Because there is no, there is not a drop of ego in this. Yeah. It's just, it's completely in service to its text. Everything is in service to its text. All of Bach's instrumental writing, all of the festive trumpets and timpani, all of the flutes, oboes, strings, and joyful choir. It's all about presenting and expressing the text. And on the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father and he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. That's true and Christian you can't be this objective anymore with music because we've exploded out into just all these different styles you know in in western classical music but in a bunch of other styles but basically like like Schweitzer's point of Bach being a terminal point of music to that era like that's not possible anymore I don't think because we're too fragmented and in a way that's a beautiful thing I mean I'm not saying that's bad and also we have to admit that Schweitzer is talking about a specific thing too right which is western classical music and that's the lens through which he's seeing this However, with that lens on, it's hard to argue that point. That Bach is this terminal point. That the expression of this stuff is as close to a collective soul that you could have of a culture. Yeah, basically of, of European Western music and religious thought. Right, and, and I guess my point is it's when, when something hits the zeitgeist just right, like, you know, let's say the rock and roll, like craze, right? Or like the Beatles or whatever, right? It does so for a reason. But but the thing about that is even though that was even though these crazes of the 20th century may have been huge, they also like usually only affected younger generations. It, it's a little bit different, you know, that everything is a lot more compressed in time with the advent of all these different communication technologies and even just a little earlier than that the industrial revolution and it's just too complicated to get into all this stuff, but the point is that you can't, you can't have another Bach anymore because we're too far in history for that, you know? He did exist at a terminal point yeah. in history and everything before him in Western music led to him, almost everything. There may be a few threads here and there that didn't, but they mostly did, Yeah. Uh, at least in, in Western Europe. And then after him, what's left is the, the humanistic serving of new thought for its own sake. romantic era of ex mm -hmm. exploring oneself uh, which comes a hundred or so years later yeah but but which but the roots of which were were in the enlightenment right i mean and the other thing too is to, to note about that is that it's not just that bach was in the right time at the right place so to speak but he also had to have the right character of personality to be to be the culmination of all these styles and to treat them with the sort of reverence that he did because Schweitzer makes a good point later in the book about Handel. Handel is undoubtedly a great composer, but he definitely didn't care as much about all that stuff as Bach, like the old chorale melodies, for example. 
yeah. did Handel care about the old Quran melodies? Not really by judging what he wrote, right? Mm -hmm. So that makes Handel's work a little bit more, I guess, subjective would be the way Schweitzer would call it. But it's just, it's, it's not a culmination, right? It's its own thing. And John Elliott Gardner talks about this too in his book. We don't know a great deal about Bach's own personal life. He didn't write that much down. We don't have as many letter, personal letters. And if we did, we might find that to be disappointing anyway. But since we don't, it just goes to show that that is not a part of what makes this music at the level that it is. And in fact, anything we do have, which is just mostly record keeping, shows a man who was, I guess, just not as enigmatically interesting as you would expect him to be. Right. If for a person who produced music of this consistency and greatness. Right. It's, it's almost as if he had to spring up out of the collective cultural consciousness of Western music and particularly German Western music. And that is really Schweitzer's thesis statement of the book, at least of the beginning portions of the book about the history preceding Bach's life. And one quote that I love is this, which we've already referenced. Bach is a terminal point. Nothing comes from him. Everything merely leads up to him. To give his true biography is to exhibit the nature and the unfolding of German art that comes to completion in him and is exhausted in him to comprehend it in all its strivings and its failures. This genius was not an individual, but a collective soul. Yeah, you might be thinking, listener, like, well, a lot of stuff comes from Bach. Aren't most composers influenced by him in, in the Western tradition? Yes, but but he's so he's so bound up with the idea of what music became that to study Bach is just to kind of to study a very high form of art. It is very impersonal and unattached to his humanity. Mm -hmm. Right. It's almost like if he had bound up his own personality or humanity into his music then it wouldn't have been this anymore it's yeah. kind of, it's kind of like the sorcerer's stone you know from the first harry potter book he had to not want to use it oh right yeah yeah and then it magically became in his possession bach had to not take credit for a lot of this stuff in the way that a richard wagner was obsessed with taking credit over his own inventions. Yeah, or, or like in the West Wing where um, Toby saved Social Security, but the only way he can save it is by not getting to take credit for it, right? <laughs> Doesn't that happen? Am I imagining that? Yeah, it's some. I don't remember how it happens, but <laughs> yeah. the, the gist of it is that they work out a way to, to fix the whole thing for the country, but the catch is that no one will ever... No, they do No one will ever know that they, that they helped... Or another analogy for that is like like the Sorcerer's Stone thing, where it's like, to be a great leader, you have to not want to be a great leader. Mm. Like, at least not for the wrong reasons, right? Which is reasons of ego or power. 
There's also something just inherently bound up in the story of Christ's death and resurrection that makes it so that if you were to put your own personal egotistical spin on this, I don't see how it would work. Mm, that's a great point. And maybe that's why church music is austere in a stuffy way, even negatively, and and in a, in a good way, in the best possible way, it's like Bach, where it's just incredibly passionate and honors its text. Right. But in, it can also be, you know, it could just also be come across as stuffy or cheesy in, in more um, more modern church music. Sure. What if something is is hymn-like and presents a objective statement of faith, it can feel stuffy. If something is subjective and and presents a, an emotional response to a religious truth, then it can feel artificial. So there's two differences there. Mm. Uh, or so there's mm-hmm. there's a dichotomy there of of style, right, and of of the effectiveness of each of those styles. It's something that you and I, Alex, face all the time as church musicians because we have to work in multiple styles and you've got a, you've got those two things against each other. You do, and you also have a lot of very strong viewpoints about it <laughs> coming from a lot of different people, which ultimately leads me to my next point, which is that people care a lot about music, <laughs> you know, like in general, especially in church or music that has to do with religious things. And... For Bach's music to so perfectly encapsulate the like the soul of the culture that he sprung out of, that is why we're talking the way we are about him, right? If he was just some composer who put his own stamp on something and he had a unique, interesting, and quirky take on these religious themes, right? Then he would be of passing interest to future generations and may just have been forgotten. Yeah. But it's not like that. And the way he synthesized all the old and new. I mean, this this church music thing is, is a constant constant source of, of gripe and sometimes misunderstanding by some people. A, a man lamented to me, we've, we've lost the music war in church music because instead of the organ, now we have the drums and the guitars and stuff. Mm. And it made me think, well, that's not how I see it at all. It's a matter of instrumentation and it doesn't have to be all about style. It doesn't have to mean like rock and roll. It doesn't have to mean that. And also, I found a way to try to politely point out to this guy that, you know, this is how it's been for a thousand years. In the year, in the year 1100 or so, the taboo, horrible, flashy new thing to do that was considered wildly inappropriate for the church uh, by a lot of people was harmony. Singing in parts, more than one. Yeah. Like a choir, which seems ridiculous to say now, but it was. And it's always been that way. And then it was instruments. Yeah. And then it's always something. Because, and and there's always a good reason, right? A justification for that view. It's that harmony distracts from the oneness of the, right? The unity of the church. Yeah. Because you're splitting the parts up. Same thing with instruments. Oh, instruments are just kind of there for their own glory. They're not Flashy. really singing the words, the scripture or, yeah. right? But the, the, drum, the, the drum set is a vile and like rhythmic thing that suggests dance, which is secular and not Or, or and because it comes from rock and roll, which is secular. Yeah. And yet 
we know from the benefit of history that these things all eventually make their way into music of all of all types, including religious music. Mm-hmm. But that's the thing about the Mass in B minor. We are now going from Holy Week, Good Friday, Jesus' death, where Bach employs an old stylistic device, the ground bass, the Pasacalia. He puts his spin on it, but it is in some ways kind of ancient. Yeah. And especially in certain moments like your your chosen moment last week, Alex. Ancient moments pushing forward. And then all of a sudden this beautiful festive dance in three-quarter time at Resurrexit as we celebrate the festival of, of Easter, of Christ's resurrection, which is a thing that doesn't even happen in in Bach's passion music. This is actually going through the church year and moving forward onto finishing the story. For this, for this critical turning point in the Mass in B minor, from death to life, Bach uses old and new musical styles, which just proves that Bach is not in it to promote some sort of composerly theory or style or anything. He's just using, he's using everything that came before him. Mm-hmm. He's using it to his advantage all in the service of setting the text about the story of the gospel, which is what his his strength was, and it's why this music endures to this day. And the, the master stroke of starting with the words, the Mass in B minor starts with words without an introduction. It's not like this is the only time it happens, but typically you'd expect an instrumental introduction, comes back as a refrain, and it the Et Resurrexit ends with that. But it starts with that, one and two, bum, 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 bum. And it has that rhythm, that three note pickup rhythm that ascends and jumps up really fast. And it just, uh, it's just so exciting. It rises, yeah. Uh, we, we talk sometimes a little bit about the particulars of the performance that we're using. And in this case, the Netherlands Box Society makes a wonderful performance decision, I think, in that in the entire Mass in B minor, they use soloists for a lot of the key moments hmm. where it is not, it doesn't necessarily have an indication whether or not to do this. We didn't mention this last week, Alex, but the crucifixus, the entire thing is done with four soloists. Yeah. That is a bold decision. Not very many recordings have that. There are a few. Petit Band has one where it's all soloists. It's amazing. Yeah. And yeah. they use period instruments. Yeah. Maybe uh, Bach was envisioning a smaller choir, and it can be done this way. Well, certainly he wasn't envisioning a large choir, because we know that based on how many parts he prepared. Oh, cool. Interesting. Yeah. I think it's only eight so, total, which means that some of the parts on the five-part stuff was were not doubled at all. Imagine how good those singers were. Yeah. So this makes a lot of sense. But it's so powerful the way they do it, where he's got soloists for the entire crucifixus, and then they sink deeper and deeper into he was buried, 
and then that remarkable contrast into and on the third day he rose again the first word is there's et and and then resurrexit he rose again the netherlands box society uses suddenly the full choir and orchestra and the the use of the full choir contrasted from before the use of the soloists is just remarkable and it it's not something you see in most mass and b minor recordings you can find plenty of recordings of the mass and b minor but this is pretty this is pretty unusual and it's kind of a stroke of genius if you ask me about how the way they the way they did this concert yeah and we know that if you've been a listener for a while episode four first season magnificat uh, the trumpets and timpani are employed only in instances of great festivity got here three trumpets and timpani they're in a fixed sort of key which is why we are in the very traditionally rejoicing key of d major which is also why bach had to set us up for that at the end of the crucifixus the whole thing leads up the crucifixus leads down 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 into this strange place setting us up a little bit closer to where we're about to go but it leaves it a little ambiguous as we await three days, I guess, for Christ to rise from the dead until it happens in this joyous dance. Quick highlights, though, besides the very beginning. I mean, you, you can't top the first one second of this, right? Yeah, I mean, that's got to be that's the moment. Yeah. But but quick two highlights on top of that. There's a part for the basses, often sung by the bass section of the choir. Et iterum venturus est cum gloria judicare vivos et mortuos, which is, and he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead. It's this great moment where just the bases sing, but in this performance it's given to a soloist. And this makes a whole lot of sense because this is a little bit like the way Bach uses the bass voice in the cantatas as the voice of Christ. Now this is not literally Christ because he's using the word he, but he's saying and Christ shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead. And so in a way, you could imagine that that is Christ saying, and I will come back to judge both the living and the dead. And here the Netherlands Box Society used a soloist for that, and that's interesting and not done in all performances of this, of this piece. <laughs> It also just makes sense logically because there's less going on in the texture of the orchestration. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like those moments in some of the cantatas where it's only continuo, right? Although here there are actually three string parts playing bit. short notes but they're 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 soft yeah and then our last bonus moment is alex you pointed out there is a bass line the continual line continual yeah. line where it builds in tension and it goes up chromatically and it tops out on a b and then finally lands on an e And this is kind of the opposite 
It's kind of the reverse of the crucifixus baseline. I just noticed this, you know, in preparation for this tonight. It wasn't something that I've really keyed into before. But you know with Bach, these these kind of things aren't accidents. Yeah, the crucifixus, it goes from E chromatically down to B all the way. And then back to E. This one starts a little lower than B and then moves chromatically up three notes to B. And then lands on E before finally snaking back around to A and then finally D where it belongs. So it's almost like this is the completion of the arc that was that whole other thing. Yeah, and I mean, not for nothing, the voice parts are also slowly and steadily ascending during this section and reaching a like triumphant peak. Right. And this, all of this is on purpose. You know, I, I firmly believe that. I, I know Bach well enough now to say that. <laughs> he was so precise in the way he wrote this music. The whole thing is really, truly a historical culmination of all of the music that has ever been written on this religious Latin text. The way he drew from the past, Bach was a terminal point. It was all leading up to him. And now, here is the opening of Et Resurrexit. If this introduction to a musical moment has inspired you to hear the rest of the Mass in B minor, please see the link in the episode description to see its performance by the Netherlands Bach Society. Do you want to hear our new episodes as we release them? Find us on your podcast app and hit subscribe. If you like the podcast, please find us on iTunes and give us a rating. That really helps other people find the podcast. And tell us what your favorite moment is from the Mass in B minor, if you're someone who knows that work. Surely we've got some people who love it out there. Tell us what your favorite moment is. We'll, we'll come back to them eventually. Although next week, Alex, what will we be doing? Next week, we will be looking at the Bach double, which is a colloquial term for the concerto for two violins in D minor, BWV 1043. Until next time, enjoy those moments.